This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Michaela Saunders, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks, Cheryl. Lovely to be here. Uh, Michaela is a Koori and Lebanese writer, teacher, community researcher and editor of This All Came Back Now, the first ever anthology of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander speculative fiction. Michaela is a 2021 Next Chapter recipient. She won the Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize, the National Indigenous Story Award and the Grace Marion Wilson Emerging Writers Prize for Nonfiction, amongst other accolades. She recently hosted for us at Better Reading, What Are You Reading? And we're very thrilled to have her today. Did you have fun doing What Are You Reading? Yeah, I loved it. I really, I love talking about books. I can talk about books underwater. Um, I don't really like talking about, you know, myself or anything, but books, yes, I can, I'll talk forever. And I found that the 20 minutes didn't really, it well, it just flew. I thought when I was asked to do it, I, I was a bit worried, oh, how am I going to just talk, you know, for 20 minutes? But it went really quick because yeah. As you know, as a book lover, you can just talk about books forever. <laughs> you can. And you know what I love about it? So for all those that don't know about it, it's on our Facebook page. It's a live segment Thursdays at 2 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. And we just sit there and just talk about books and we ask what people are reading at home. But what I love about our community and all readers, I reckon, is that they have a huge amount of empathy and they're very considered whether they like a book or whether they don't like a book. They're always considered, you know, and I quite like that. Yeah, I agree. I'd agree. Um, like any reader, I'm very discerning, you know. I love what I love for a reason and I don't mm. like certain things. Um, mm. And, you know, it's it's not not often to do with the content or the subject, but sometimes it's mostly the style of the writing or whatever. But I think people who read a lot are experts in reading and, you know, we, we like what we like and we don't. And we're able to articulate it rather than just saying, oh, I didn't. I didn't enjoy it, but you can actually talk about why you didn't enjoy it, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, we've got um, something in common. We're both half Lebanese. (laughs) Well, actually, no. Fully Lebanese, actually. I'm fully Aboriginal and fully Lebanese. I think I am fully as well. I just realised that. I think, well, I was born in Australia, but both my parents are Lebanese. Mm. Um, So I think that makes me fully, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. Okay, tell me about you and tell me about your makeup. You know, where did you grow up? How, you know, who were your parents? How you came to writing? Oh, okay. So I was born in Western Sydney, Dara country. So my through my mum's side of the family, my uh, my old people there are Darug. So I was born where you know my people have been born for millennia. So my mum's Koori and my dad is Lebanese, and they grew up together. They, they my mum's brother and my dad were friends, and um, they got together. They were they always got along. Um, both families. 
I think, you know, I, I, I often get people surprised about, you know, me being Aboriginal and Lebanese as though it's like some weird combination. But um, when you think about blackfellas and lebs, like our cultures are so similar, you know, we're so, both of my families are really family oriented. Tated, sorry. Both are very funny people, love food, love footy, just, you know, just love hanging out and have a good time. How did they meet? How does um, a per- yeah, how did that, did they go to school together? Yeah, so my uncle, my Aboriginal uncle and my dad, my Lebanese dad, um, they were friends as teenagers. Yeah, they went to school, yeah. they hung out. And um, I think Western Sydney is just, it is a big melting pot of cultures. I think, you know, the kind of default or the norm is for, you know, if Aboriginal people have mixed heritage, it's usually they have a white parent. Um, apparently that's normal. But for me, that's not normal. To me, it's normal to have, you know, what I am. And I don't, yeah. it's not weird. Um, both of my families get along with each other and they love each other. So, yeah. Yeah. I speak to um, many writers and I've sp- spoken to a few Aboriginal writers who, particularly in Western Australia, who are part Aboriginal, part Asian because of the migration into mm-hmm. Western Australia as well. And I always find that quite interesting. Now, I don't know how much you listen to this podcast, but it is diversity and what makes us who we are is really one of my favourite subjects. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I want to ask you, because I, um, my parents were both born in Lebanon. They came out in the late 60s. I have, uh, my two eldest were born in Lebanon, then they came back and then me and my middle sister, we were born here and then they went back and had my other two. So identity was always a thing for me. I speak about it a lot because growing up, I was six when they finally settled here, right, and I had no English whatsoever. I remember my first day at school. As a matter of fact, I don't remember not knowing the language. I just remember being there. And I do remember that I was different, right? And as I got older, particularly in primary school because I I grew up in Glebe, I became very different in the perception of how people saw me. Like I was the lib in the school. I was the one that had funny lunches. I was the one that had the knitted cardigan. Talk to me about that for you in primary school. Did you have that? Did you feel that? Well, not so much because I I mean I went to I went to Walters Road Public School in Blacktown. So yeah. all yeah. my friends, we were all from different parts of the world we all spoke different languages at home it wasn't weird there at all Uh, but when I moved to Tweed when I was uh, I was was almost at high school and now the Tweed has is mostly white or it was then it was mostly white but um, also with a really amazing Aboriginal community a very big Aboriginal community I think at our school like something like 10 or 15 percent of the kids were Aboriginal and when we moved my mum was very involved in the community um, they were very accepting of us um, and no I never had any issues there at all because I knew that even though I wasn't from Tweed um, you know we had all these other connections and I felt like I belonged and I do yeah yeah, so, yeah yeah maybe not so much I think maybe if I had gone to maybe like a middle class school or a private school I might have had those issues but I come from a very working class background both on both sides of my family um working class Lebanese Aboriginal South Sea Islander people and we all just get along with each other and there's I mean of of course 
you have the occasional relative, you'll say not so nice things, but, you know, you learn to avoid them and you, you just... Yeah, everyone else is pretty accepting and welcoming. Mm. I'm wondering too because we're probably a couple of generations apart and whether things have changed because when I was in primary school and high school, I wasn't all that proud of my identity because it gave me a lot of grief, right? But when I discovered it, I've worn it loud and proud and sometimes I I feel sad that I didn't embrace it earlier. Mm. Yeah, I mean... I think it is to do with the people who are around you and whether yeah. you're allowed to feel proud or whatever. But as I said, I grew up in, you know, I had a very multicultural friend group and community in Blacktown. And then when we moved to Tweed, I had um, this incredible guru community who I became part of. And if anyone ever said anything about me being Lebanese, I, I mean, I don't think I really cared too much. I Here's the thing. I grew up in a family who is very, very, very proud family. Also a family who um, if anyone ever put anything on them, they would just fight them. Like, you know, I have all these stories of my dad and my uncles and, you know, my mum and my aunties, not, they don't, they wouldn't let people do that to them. And I grew up with that pride and so did my brothers. So I don't know, maybe it's just that mentality, mentality that was instilled in us to just never let anyone, but also, um, we're just friendly people too, so we get along with people. Um, there was a moment, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, there was a moment when I went back to Lebanon to visit my family, my mother's family, um, who are still, you know, she's got a big family over there. And the first thing, you know, I was travelling on an Australian passport and the first thing the customs guy said to me, and I couldn't work out why he said this, but it just moved me to my core. He said, welcome to your homeland. And he stamped my passport. And I'm just like, oh, my God, you know, it just moved me. And um, my uncle couldn't work out why. Mm. And then the other thing that happened to me over there is my grandmother, she, you know, loved us so much and, you know, she'd seen, she'd almost raised us when we were little and then we left. Mm. But she took me around and showed me to all her neighbours, you know. It was just so exciting for her. And she said, this is Cheryl, she's Australian. And I said, hang on, no, 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 sit there. No, 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 no. I'm not Australian. (laughs) I'm Lebanese. And she's like, ah, you know, of course you're Australian. Mm. And, do you know, that was a conflict with me for a while. That made me really sad because I just thought, oh, wow, where do I belong now? Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I've never been to Lebanon. I'd like to go. I've always wanted to go. Um, Oh, you'd love it. Yeah, a lot of my cousins and my auntie. my, my, My dad was born here. He's never been. You know, I I don't know, because I didn't, so my mum my and my dad, they split up before I was born, but, you know, they remained friends. So I didn't grow up with, uh, you know, my dad. And when we moved away, um, I had less to do with the family, like I would still go and visit. But when I was really little, I used to speak Lebanese, you know, because yeah, I would, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would go to, you know, Suto and Judo's house um, yeah. every weekend and I would be with my family and I, I, I could speak Lebanese. And now, because I moved away, I don't have that fluency. I can still understand bits, but I don't, I haven't had that practice. So, um, I think maybe because I, I've never really felt like I fully, totally belong anywhere, I haven't really worried about it. It's just been something I've accepted. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I want to talk about um, how you came to writing. Was it something that you thought about when you were little? Were you a voracious reader and thought, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up? How, how did you come to it? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, multiple starting points. And when I look back, I can see that they all started in these different places and they kind of thread together to now. Um, But, yeah, when I was little, I loved reading. Um, I loved stories. I loved my family telling me stories, especially my Uncle Kev, who I was very close to. I love oral stories. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I grew up in a very working-class family, Um, people or like my family are really well known for their sense of humor and just really good storytelling. And I just was always in rap, you know, enthralled by the way um, people told stories and there aren't any writers in my family. Um, they're not big readers. There's a couple who read, who might read a few things, but as far as written storytelling goes, that doesn't come from my family, but the, the love of storytelling does. And then I guess when I was in school, um, yeah, I just read a lot, um, tried my hand at writing. I, I went to some schools that, you know, I went to public schools, pretty underfunded public schools. Mm. Um, there was a f- quite a few teachers, especially in high school. Um, I went to Tweed River High and I had some great teachers, but a lot of the teachers were very close to retirement age and, you know, they all moved. In fact, teachers moved there to retire and I found that a lot of them weren't very engaged with us or didn't know how to relate to us. So um, I, I hear other people have these incredible experiences at school and teachers who inspired them to read and write, but I didn't really have that. I came to writing pretty late. I only started writing five years ago, um, well, writing fiction and poetry uh, when I changed degrees, uh, well, I changed my path. I I was doing education and teaching and research before that, and then I changed to creative writing because I wanted to learn how to write. You know, I'd grown up reading a a fair bit of Australian literature and I didn't really feel like it was my kind of stuff. Um, I felt pretty alienated from a lot of it because I guess a lot of the stuff I was reading, well, a lot that was published was, you know, very middle-class white stories about, you know, those kinds of lives, which are lives that I don't really have anything in common with. But when I was in my undergrad doing teaching, doing my Bachelor of Education, I took a unit on Indigenous storytelling and my lecturer at the time, Dr. Peter Minter, he set a chap he set chapter one of Alexis Wright's Carpentaria for us yeah. as a reading. And it blew my mind. Like it really, it just for the first time I saw that an, a very Aboriginal voice, a very chatty, cheeky voice did belong in literature. And I thought maybe then I could write my own stories. Now, I didn't start straight away. Um, It took me years before I did start writing, but I think that was a seed that was planted. You know, I read that first chapter in class and then I went out and bought the book and it's still my favourite book. I love it. I've written an essay on it about how, you know, that has inspired me to write. And, yeah, so years later in 2017 when I started my Doctor of Arts degree in creative writing um, because I wanted to write stories, I returned to the book Carpentaria and I read it to try and kind of maybe demystify it and you know I read it as a writer for the first time rather than just as a reader and I was seeing what Alexis Wright was doing you know with her structure and even to the sentence level and I just still really admire it and I've read that book so many times it's a huge book and I know it's not for everyone but it's a book that's for me and it really inspired me. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I want to go back to that comment because I don't think anyone's ever said that to me that you read it as a reader as a writer not a reader. Does that mean because when I read something I'm I'm hooked hook like line and sinker. I don't see any of the edits, I don't see anything. I see beautiful sentences and I think they just came to the page from here to here and and that's meant to be the reader experience and I love it. But as a writer, is it that you see all the markups, the editorial markups? Is that what you're seeing? When Not you necessarily. Say, I mean, I think if there are mistakes, they stand out. For me, yeah. anyway, I don't I can't speak to anyone else, but when I'm reading and if there are if there are little mistakes, because as I said, I'm a very critical person. If I see something, then it takes <laughs> me out of the story, you know. Yeah. We want our reading experience to be seamless. We want it to be captured mm-hmm. into the page and to not even think about the act of reading just for yeah. it to happen. But I think if there are little mistakes. Yeah, but when when I say reading as a writer, I'm very very consciously reading in a way that I'm not being captured into the page. I'm I am taking a step back, and um, usually that's on a reread for me. You know, the first read, if it's a great book, I'll just I will I'll go with it. I'll allow myself to be lost in the story. But if I really admire the book, I'll reread it as a writer, and I do, I read it with a a bit more of distance and I'm looking at what is happening, you know, down to the sentence level, uh, the the rhythm of the the sentences and the structure and all those craft elements that you need to be aware of to be a good writer. Um, I'm looking at how other writers are doing it and learning from them. Mm, I like that. Um, So when you finally decided to write, how easily or how difficult was that for you? What, you woke up one morning and you thought today's the day, you've had an idea brewing in you. Tell me how you came to that. Well, it was in the lead up to, so let's, so I started my Doctor of Arts degree in 2017. So the year before, 2016, I read a lot of science fiction and speculative fiction, mm-hmm. particularly Australian futurism, um, and I watched a lot of Australian futurist movies like Mad Max, you know, we'll re-watch them really because I'd watched them before. But for the first time I started thinking critically about speculative fiction and what it can do. And the thing I was noticing with so much of it was that in the Australian idea of the future, Aboriginal people weren't there. Now, as someone who mm-hmm. um, I'm a descendant of people who who survived attempted genocide, you know, I my grandmother and my great-grandmother were stolen generations. Um, For me, it's really important for us to see ourselves in the future, particularly in times like that we're living through now that are pretty grim. But it's especially important for us to to have these stories, especially for our young people, so they can see some kind of good living in their future. So I was thinking a lot about that stuff and I thought, you know what, I'm not seeing a lot of stories where Aboriginal people are thriving in the future. Um, And so maybe I can write my own. 
and I started thinking about all these different worlds and and what could come. And so when I started my Doctor of Arts degree, um, I did, it wasn't, it's not a traditional PhD. It's like, it's a creative degree. So for my thesis, um, about half of the word count was I wrote a short story collection. Now, all the stories are set in my community, in the Tweed, in the future, but they're all set in different versions of the future and they all feature very thriving, strong, connected Aboriginal community um, because I hadn't seen really much of that in fiction. There, there are a few Aboriginal writers who've done something like that, but I wanted to do it for my own community and that's actually why I started writing because I, I just wanted to, I wanted to read stories and I wanted my community to read stories about futures where we're not, you know, um, extinct or dying or downtrodden. Oh, not even mentioned. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I want this to be centre stage and I, not just one or two Aboriginal characters yeah. but a whole community and that's what I did. I wrote a short story collection um, and there are 18 stories in it, so 18 different versions of the future, all different climate change scenarios, different political structures, all just very just different weird worlds. I just wanted to see, you know, just the different things I could imagine. And did you like it? Did you like writing? I love it. I love learning about writing. I, as I said, I've always loved stories and storytelling and I love reading, but I never thought about the mechanics of it, of how to do it, of how, of the craft elements, of all these skills that you need to have to, mm-hmm. um, you know, to be able to capture an audience's mind and to transport them. I never really thought about how people did it because I just, I grew up with people who just did it naturally. They weren't thinking of it either. They were just doing it. But for me, I wanted to study these, you know, craft techniques and and the elements of good storytelling. And I wasn't lucky enough to do a proper, what we would call like a creative writing degree. I only took two classes in my, you know, usually people will take 16 or 20 classes, but I only took two, but those two classes were really uh, great. I had great teachers. The first one was Fiona McFarlane, who is an incredible writer. She wrote yes. and um, The High Places, yeah. yeah. She was my first teacher, okay, and she, we had a workshop class and it was about how to write a short story and I'd never written a short story for- before. But through this class, through her um, giving us teach, uh, writing prompts throughout the weeks, I wrote my first short story. And my first short story is actually in the anthology um, that, you know, I, I put it in there. It 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 was shortlisted for the Collisions, uh, for, for the Liminal Fiction Prize in 2019. Um, and I'm just really proud of that story. And again, that's that's a story that's set in my community in the future and features a community characters. All right. So that's a segue for us. Tell me about this collection and where the idea came about. Okay. So this all come back now. It is something that grew out of my studies um, for my Doctor of Arts project. So as I mentioned, I was reading lots of speculative fiction. I took it upon myself to hunt down and read every single story that was set in an Australian future that featured at least one Aboriginal character. Now, the vast majority of these stories were written by white writers and most of them are no good. So I I thought it was pretty grim. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to collect 
a bunch of stories together that some had already been published, but some are very new. I wanted to collect it together in like a basket of like-minded stories so that other people could read it and see that we have been writing this stuff for years. You know, our first uh, Aboriginal speculative fiction novel was published in 1990. And that's The Kadaicha Sung by Uncle Sam Watson, who passed away a few years ago. He was an incredible um, Murray activist and author. So there are there are excerpts of books like that in here, uh, you know, books that had already been published, but also some newer stuff. So I wanted to kind of collect the best of our stuff in, in this book so that other people could see, you know, because over the years of my study, I've had so many people ask me, you know, why isn't there much Aboriginal speculative fiction being published? Well, I have to answer there is, you know, it's just not in the places people expect. So it's usually in mainstream literary magazines. And also it is stuff that people would not normally think of as speculative fiction. They would think of as like Aboriginal dreaming stories or something like that. But if you think about it, our old stories use all these literary devices that speculative fiction uses, you know, but we've just been doing it for millennia. When you think about ghosts and time warps and uh, demons and spirits and magic, these are all things that our stories have been using for millennia, but spec fic you know, has been using it for the last few decades or or 100 years or so, yeah. So what was the criteria, like, in terms of your selection? So I put out a call. uh, So about this time last year, in fact, I was still reading for stories. I I put out a call for submissions and I shared it and I, I asked everyone to share it far and wide and I asked for stories that were weird and wonderful and stories that just weren't realist or naturalist stories, stories that they could be ghost stories, horror stories, uh, futurist stories, sci-fi, anything, anything that takes place outside the bounds of consensus reality. So the reality that we all kind of agree is what's happening around us more or less. Um, And yeah, I got I got sent so many stories and I read through uh, many other stories that had already been published and I got in touch with writers. Um, I, I emailed writers I'd never spoken to before. I emailed writers I had already had a relationship with and just asked them to send me stuff or, and yeah, I ended up reading about 60 submissions. Um, I was only able to choose 21, but. It was uh, that hard. Yeah, it was, it was because. Yeah. I could have theoretically made three books, you know. I could have had one that really focused on, like, ghost stories and horror. I could have had one that focused on, like, futuristic stuff. And I could have had one that, you know, uh, focused on more about our kind of cultural, spiritual beliefs. I really could have done that. But unfortunately, I didn't have the time or the funding to do that, maybe one day. So I had to just choose for one book. So what I did, I chose a bit of everything. So it's really like a mixed bag. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're out of time, Michaela. Um, What a wonderful conversation. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. And congratulations on the book. Thank you, Cheryl. I love talking to you. I love your questions. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. 
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.